Today on Blue 58, let's talk about the defensive line. Like their teammates on the edge, the story of the Packers' defensive line might have more to do with how they'll be used in 2024 than what they did in 2023. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink, and I am happy to be with you here for another episode. We're only, what, four episodes into this recap process this look back on all the Packers position groups from 2023. And I feel like I've said this is a weird position to look at with just about every single one of them. But I think that's kind of, well, it's kind of a crutch for your humble podcaster on the one hand because trying to figure and figure out and fit all these things together sometimes is a little bit weird and maybe not as weird as they make it out to be. But, yeah, I think there's some of that. But, you know, failing – other descriptors, maybe weird is just how we have to describe it. But on the other hand, there's a lot going on with the Packers' defensive line. Look at it this way. There's a few statements, there are a few statements, that I think are all true of this position group. Three come to mind. First, I think the Packers' defensive line generally did well at what they were supposed to do in 2023, or maybe more specifically, what they were asked to do in 2023. Secondly, I think the shortcomings of this defensive line were driven as much by the physical attributes and abilities of the players on the line as with the scheme and their overall ability as a group. And thirdly, what they were asked to do was both a reflection of those attributes and abilities and a misuse of the abilities that they did have. So, To recap, I think they did a good job for what they were asked to do, but they were put in some bad positions because of the players that you had that you were asking to do those things, and the things that you were asking them to do were not necessarily a good idea, given who you did have on the field. Do you see how I might describe that as a little bit weird? Those things, I think, are all true, but they all seem kind of conflicting. We'll talk about him more in depth in a couple minutes. But I think Colby Wooden is a perfect example of this phenomenon. I don't think Colby Wooden is the greatest prospect in the world, was not super enthused about the draft pick when they picked him, but I think there is a lot to like about Wooden's game. He's got good size. He's fairly athletic. He was a versatile pass rusher in college. But for what the Packers picked him to do and then used him to do, it was kind of a weird fit. Colby Wooden is 273 pounds, or that is his listed weight at at least. He might be a little bit heavier than that. He might even be a little bit lighter than that. And counting playoffs, he played 289 total snaps. Almost half of those, or about half of those, came inside as a defensive tackle. Now, you don't have to be a football genius to figure out that there might be some problems for you if you are a 270-pound defensive lineman going up against much larger defensive linemen. Just look at the Packers' starting guards. John Runyon, I think, is heavier than Elton Jenkins, even if he's not. They're both relatively in the same ballpark, and neither of whom, neither of them is very big, very heavy for an offensive guard. Wooden is giving up more than 30 pounds to John Runyon, and he faced much bigger guards than Runyon throughout the regular season. He's behind the eight ball from the very start, Even if he does his very best as a player, he's just going to be at a disadvantage because of what you're asking him to do. 
it's it's a strange sort of situation. And there's other guys who ended up finding really good fits on this defensive line in general. But I think there were a lot of situations like Colby Wooden on this defensive line group or within this defensive line group. Consider a little bit further, diving into the individual players here, our cameos category. This is usually where we talk about guys that appeared in a, a couple of games within a given position group, but ended up playing fewer than 100 snaps total on on their unit of, well, not unit of choice, but the unit of which their position is a significant part. So for our purposes today, if you played fewer than 100 snaps on defense and you're a defensive lineman, you would fall into this cameo category. How many of those do you think there are on this year's roster? Won't let you think about it all too long because the answer is zero. None. The Packers both had remarkable health on the defensive line. They had all of the guys that they wanted from week one on available all season long. But also there were no players where they tried anything differently. No players coming up from the practice squad for a game, two games, any amount of games that resulted in those guys playing fewer than 100 snaps on the defensive line this year. I point that out because there were two defensive linemen who were on the the practice squad all season long and got zero looks on the 53-man roster. Those guys are Chris Slayton and Jonathan Ford, two big, beefy defensive linemen who sat on the Packers practice squad all year long and did virtually the same thing last year. Throw Jack Heflin in there and you've got two complete seasons with three bigger-bodied defensive linemen who really just sat on the practice squad all season long. That's two years in a row now where the Packers struggled with size up front, and they've now looked at both of these guys for almost 40 straight weeks of regular season football and just said, nope, no thank you, we're good, we're all set. That is a weird sort of philosophy to have. Things are not necessarily working, but instead of trying something differently, we're going to keep miscasting the guys that we have. Now, to be fair, there are some things that this pass rush group, this defensive line group, did did fairly well. And I kind of spoiled it for myself there. But as a group, I think pass rush-wise, they did quite well as a group. All of these guys had pretty decent pressure rates. Some of them had outstanding pressure rates. That's not to say things couldn't have been better. But as a whole, this seemed like a pretty solid group rushing the passer. Now, I don't have to tell you the numbers. I didn't even bother writing them down. But the, the, the rush numbers were bad. The, the rushing defense was bad, and that starts with a lot of these guys up front. But the Packers didn't seem particularly interested in getting their defensive linemen to defend the run. In fact, now that we've looked at the edge rushing group and the defensive line group, with really just the linebackers to go, it's really hard to sit here and say, who were the Packers looking, or it's it's hard to sit here and say who the Packers wanted to stop the run for them. Was it the defensive line? No, because they like to stunt their guys all the time. They're moving their defensive linemen around, and that leaves you really wide open to getting gashed in the run game just because you have guys moving around and it's easy to get out of position. Was it their edge rushers? Not really. Preston Smith is their most reliable run-stopping edge rusher. He's not what he once was, but he still is is quite solid at it. But they're certainly not wasting a lot of Rashawn Gary's time defending the run. Lucas Van Ness really didn't play enough to be a significant contributor against the run. J.J. Nickbari was solid, but nothing to write home about. It, it sure wasn't the defensive line or the, the edge rushers. And then the linebackers, well, Quay Walker did his best. 
but he's fighting a losing battle out there, being really the only guy who had a lot of success against the run. Isaiah McDuffie sure played his part as well as he could have, but he, like Colby Wooden, we've mentioned before him, also struggles with just some of the raw size issues that we talk about uh, among the Packers' defensive front. So whose fault is it if this is not working well? Is it a roster construction issue? Is it a coaching issue? Is it just a combination of everything? Basically, yes, I would say. So let's talk about those individual guys going fewest to most snaps played on defense. First up in those categories are Colby or is Colby Wooden, who played 255 snaps on defense in the regular season. Another 46 on special teams, where he primarily lined up on field goal and extra point block and punt return. In the box score, half a sack on the year for Colby, 17 tackles, two quarterback hits, had a pressure rate of 8.16%. That is eight out of nine qualifying players on the Packers this year and a pressure rate on true pass sets of 7.81%. That ranked ninth out of nine. Did not even out-pass rush TJ Slayton in that category. Prediction-wise, we said Colby Wooden would have three or fewer sacks. He did. We also predicted he'd play fewer than 350 snaps, which is a very high bar in retrospect. Probably should have had that closer to 250, maybe even 200, um, given the, the depth chart ahead of him. He did only play 255 snaps, though, so according to that prediction, at least, we were right. Looking at his season overall, I would say not super great, but I think it's mostly an issue of being miscast. And again, I don't want to be too reductive here, but Colby Wooden, again, is only 273 pounds. Having him line up as a defensive tackle is kind of your fault if you end up having issues there. So did he meet expectations? No, but I don't know if that's really his fault. What were you really expecting from this guy who is not really this kind of player to begin with? His outlook for 2024 might be the most scheme-dependent of all the Packers' defensive linemen. What do you do with him? He's probably not a 4-3 defensive tackle. He's light even for that, and your 4-3 defensive tackles tend to be a little bit lighter than the big space eaters you have up front in a 3-4. So I don't know. It it seems like a shot in the dark. It seems like hope more than anything at this point, but I might just put him on the Mike Neal plan. You remember Mike Neal a few years back? Not a few years back. It's going to be longer than a few years back. But drafted as a defensive tackle out of Purdue, finishes his career as an edge rusher in Green Bay, a stand-up edge for the Green Bay Packers in their 3-4. That, I think, is the, the prognosis there for Colby Wooden. We know he's an athlete. We know he has some movement skills. He doesn't do a lot in the agility drills, but... He has better movement skills than, you know, a lot of prospects out there. We know he can rush the passer from the edge, not overly productively, but he did it in college. I say just now you're a pure defensive end. That's all we want from you. You're going to line up as a defensive end, a traditional 4-3 defensive end, three-point stance and all that. Maybe that fixes things for him. And it's possible that there's just not much to fix here, but At least I think you have to try something differently. One of the best things I think you can do with young players who struggle a bit at first is to take some stuff off of their plates. And I think just simplifying his role, just let him do one thing, is a step forward for Colby Wooden in that regard. And if he can't do that, well, at least you've tried something a little bit different than his initial use case in Green Bay, which doesn't seem to have really worked out for him all that much. Next up is Carl Brooks, who played 380 snaps on defense, another 107 on special teams. On special teams, again, punt return and field goal and extra point block was a regular on the field goal teams 
all year long. Uh, in the box score, four sacks, 20 tackles, five quarterback hits, a pressure rate of 9.8%, sixth out of nine on the team. True pass set pressure rate of 11.64%. Very good, but still just sixth out of nine on the team. I predicted this year that he'd have fewer than three sacks like Colby Wooden. He surpassed that with four. Also thought he'd play fewer than 275 snaps. Surpassed that as well, playing 380. Pretty solid amount there for the fifth round pick out of BGSU. I think it was a fifth round pick, was it? Day three pick, regardless. Uh, whether it's fifth or sixth is really kind of immaterial. The Packers did pick him up as a part of one of their trade backs in the second round. So basically a free draft pick for the Packers, and it worked out really well in the form of Carl Brooks. Spoiling my next segment here, but I think it's a pretty, pretty solid year for Carl Brooks. And it's exciting to be right on somebody for once draft-wise. I, you know that I struggle with, with draft predictions and stuff. But our numbers had him as a a solid prospect from day one. He was very productive in college. He's a pretty good athlete. And he delivered on that scouting report. A nifty, interesting player coming out of BGSU and an interesting piece for the Packers moving forward. So I would say he he met expectations for 2023, but overly high, no, they were not. Um, We were not expecting all that much out of Carl Brooks, but he delivered and, and really, I guess, surpassed expectations in that respect. Like Colby Wooden, I think looking ahead to 2024, scheme is going to affect his usage a little bit. He's probably a three-tech defensive tackle, which seemed like the best fit for him from day one anyway. He's not a stand-up defensive end like he played played in college. He's probably a little bit big to play that position in a 4-3 defense now. If you want to bump him out there, you can, but he probably needs to be a guy who's going to be head up or slanted slightly on a guard. That seems like a good place for him to be. That's a lot of what he did anyway in 2023. Seems like a good fit for him moving forward. Still a good piece for you to have uh, as Jeff Halfley coming in here in your your first year with the Packers as their defensive coordinator. Same thing kind of goes for Devontae Wyatt, who is next on our list, having played 552 snaps on defense, just 40 on special teams. A little bit of field goal and extra point block, a little bit of punt return, but hardly any in that category and really not a meaningful number of special team snaps in the regular season anyway. Finished the year with five and a half sacks, 36 tackles, 11 quarterback hits. Needless to say, all significant increases over 2022. Excuse me. His pressure rate was 12.42% on the year, second out of nine qualifying players on the Packers. True pass set pressure rate of 17.35%, also second on the on the Packers. Broadly speaking, his pressure numbers are very comparable to second-year Rashawn Gary. Put a pin in that, though. We are going to come back to that particular figure here in just a second. Prediction-wise, one out of three on, on wide. I predicted he'd be at 650 snaps or more. That actually turned out to be incorrect. He played a little bit less than I thought he would this year losing snaps to T.J. Slayton, which is a little bit of a surprise. Devontae Wyatt, I also predicted, would have fewer than five sacks. He, he broke that one. That's that's an exciting one. Glad to be wrong in that direction. But we also predicted his pressure rate would increase in 2023, which ended up being correct. He, he increased quite a bit, in fact, was in the mid-7s range, uh, but jumped up to the mid-11s, uh, excuse me, to the, the 12% range um, for 2023. So big jump there for... Uh, for Devontae Wyatt. 
Overall, 2023, I think, is a pretty big success for Devontae Wyatt, a pretty stellar improvement over his rookie season. Looking at how he played in 2023, it's wild to think that the Packers looked at his skill set, looked at his body of work at Georgia, looked at his, his testing numbers, and just said, you know what we really need to see, having spent one of our two first-round picks on Devontae Wyatt, is just, well, really just more Jaron Reed and Dean Lowry. I think that's where we need to go in in 2022 here. Less of our promising rookie, more of the veteran that we have in on a one-year deal, and also our our other veteran on an expiring deal, neither of whom have been overwhelming successes in their NFL careers. Those two guys, yes, promising rookie, no thank you. Overselling it there a little bit, but he, he... made that look foolish in 2023. So it's a pretty easy yes as to whether or not he met expectations, but there's plenty of room for improvement here as well. Referring back to those pressure numbers here for a second, his his pressure numbers are very good. Uh, Devontae Wyatt creates a lot of pressure on the quarterback, but as we've kind of, I don't want to say harped on this year, but mentioned a few times this year, there are different kinds of pressures. Three different metrics go into, three different kinds of pressures go into the pressure rate stat. So you look at the total number of times that a guy rushes, rushes the passer, and then you look at the number of times that he got a sack, a quarterback hit, or a, um, or a hurry, uh, and divide the sum of those by the number of times that he rushed the passer, and there you get your pressure rate. Looking at the types of pressures that he created, nobody on the Packers was creating contact with the quarterback less than Devontae Wyatt. Certainly among their their top-end pass rushers, he was actually finishing at the quarterback the least. Uh, he was creating less, fewer sacks and fewer quarterback hits per pressure than just about anybody on the Packers. That is some real obvious room for improvement for Devontae Wyatt heading into 2024. Not to say that I'm not excited about Devontae Wyatt. And if I'm Jeff Halfley, I'm definitely excited about Devontae Wyatt because if I'm running a 4-3 defense and I am, I like his versatility. He has the size to play inside. He has the speed and athleticism to to bump him outside if he want to. One of the the day one pitches on Wyatt is that he was a really versatile piece. And that was something that Brian Gutekunst mentioned a few times over the last couple years in terms of what they were trying to do with the guys that they were acquiring. They just wanted guys that could play all over the front. So you get Devontae Wyatt, you get Colby Wooden, you get Lucas Van Ness, you get uh, Carl Brooks. All of those guys can do a bunch of different things on your defensive front. Wyatt is one of the, the better guys on that list in terms of his versatility, which is good because 2024 is a huge year for Wyatt. He's already heading into his age 26 season. He's pretty old uh, and and has been old since the Packers selected him. Um, but the Packers are going to need to decide on his fifth-year option after this season. So we're already looking at a situation where Wyatt could be making some significant money for himself if he plays well this year. If he has a season, I think, comparable to this year, uh, this, this most recent year, in 2024, I don't think I'd think too long and hard about picking up that fifth-year option. Uh, you need bodies on your defensive line. He seems like a good one. And if he can be basically, I don't know what, 10 to 15% better than he was in 2023, in 2024, 
I think you're doing pretty well and you feel pretty good about picking up that fifth year option. It is, it's kind of funny that you got to pick up year five right after they finish year three and you haven't even started year four yet. But, um, the players have so few advantages in contract negotiation. Uh, just look at how long it took a guy like Alan Lazard or maybe a, a more current example, um, Yash Nyman to, to reach unrestricted free agency, how many different exclusive rights tags and, um, unrestricted free agent or uh, restricted free agent tags you have to go through before you get to true unrestricted free agency. The team can control you even if you weren't drafted, which seems a little bit backwards, but uh, the fifth year option gives some power back to the players. So if you have three solid years, you can get that fifth year guaranteed already and set yourself up for a situation where you want to negotiate for a new contract sooner than that. But it's one of the few examples of the Packer or of the player really having power in this kind of relationship. Um, but a big year, suffice it to say, for Devontae Wyatt and uh, money on the line for him heading into year number three already. Next up on our list is TJ Slayton, who played the second most snaps among any Packers defensive lineman this year with 626 on defense. Also chipped in another 153 on special teams. Ended up 11th on the team in special team snaps. This means nothing. And I, I just, I mention it because I just find it funny, but he only played six fewer snaps on special teams than Anders Carlson did in 2023, which again means nothing. Your kicker is only going to be out there for kickoffs and extra points and field goals. Your conceivably, you could have somebody who plays on every special teams unit and just racks up hundreds and hundreds of special team snap. I think Eric Wilson led the team this year, and he was over 300 snaps on special teams this year just because he's lining up on everything. I just think it's funny that you you have uh, the Packers' biggest defensive lineman playing almost identical snaps on special teams to the, the Packers' Willoughby rookie kicker. Amusing, perhaps only to me. But Slayton lining up primarily on field goal and extra point block, some punt return, and a stalwart on the field goal and extra point kick team. Played right tackle on that unit exclusively all season long. Uh, box score stats for Slayton this year, no sacks, but 50 tackles and two quarterback hits. Also led the team quite easily in Pro Football Focus's uh, stops stat. Uh, nobody really within the same ballpark on the defensive line in terms of how often they were stopping uh, the opposing ball carrier for a run that was essentially worthless uh, to the offense. So great work there by Mr. Slayton doing exactly what the Packers need him to do. Elsewhere in the advanced sort of stats, a pressure rate of 5.28%, a true pass set rate of 8.51%. Those rank ninth and eighth, respectively. He does bump past Colby Wooden in the true pass set pressure rate, but we're still waiting to see um, a full solo sack from TJ Slayton in his still young NFL career. We hit on two of our predictions on TJ Slayton, only made two, predicted he'd have a career high in snaps, easily did that, played 626. As we mentioned, his previous high was in the, the upper 300s, actually lower 300s, 333. Also predicted he'd start at least five games, but Slayton actually started all 17 regular season games for the Packers this year. Slayton was exactly what the Packers need him, needed him to be in 2023. I think there are a few guys that you can find on the Packers roster who had a better alignment of performance and role than TJ Slayton. They needed him to be a big block-eating run-stuffer, and largely speaking, he was. So I think it's a pretty solid yes on whether or not he met expectations. Heading into 2024, he too 
uh, like Devontae Wyatt, has a lot on the line this year. He's got to be a big part of the Packers' defensive line plans. He is the only player really like himself on the roster right now. What use do they have for a, a traditional nose tackle in this year's version of the scheme? Well, that remains to be seen. But he is the, the biggest and strongest of their defensive linemen. I think that is pretty easily understood at this point. So he's pretty unique on the roster right now. He is also heading into a contract year, having been not a first-round pick. His fourth year is the final year of his rookie contract, and he could stand to be making a pretty sizable chunk of money next offseason if he has another solid year. So if he puts up a year like this one where he's playing a bunch of snaps, playing all 17 games, just being solid against the run, someone is going to find value in that, and you're probably looking at, you know, at least low double-digit guaranteed money for a guy who can do that at a fairly high level. And those kind of guys can play for a long, long time. Just look at Mike Pennell, the former Packers undrafted free agent, playing in the Super Bowl. He's like 10 years in now. Uh, You just need big space eaters. Well, they can play for a long, long time, and there's almost always going to be a role for them no matter what scheme you're playing. Because at the end of the day, there's still a lot of football. Whatever plays you want to run, whatever scheme you want to use, however advanced you want to get with your your game planning and stuff like that, a lot of this game still just comes down to being big and strong and fast. And a big, beefy defensive tackle is for certain big and strong. And if you can use that effectively, you can make a lot of money for yourself for a real long time because there aren't a lot of guys that can duplicate that kind of effort if you can do it at a high level. Kenny Clark, the last of the defensive linemen we look at in our our position recap this year, 810 snaps on defense, 30 on special teams, playing exclusively on the field goal and extra point block, almost exclusively, did not take a special team snap after week eight. That is probably a coincidence. It's probably a coincidence. Probably. But it does align with when his season really took off. If you look at his pressure numbers, pressure rate stats, after week eight, Kenny Clark really starts to take off, but we'll talk about that here in a second. Box score stats, seven and a half sacks, a career high. 44 tackles, nine tackles for loss, ties a career high. 16 quarterback hits, a career high. Pressure rate, 11.66%, right up there with his career highs. Uh, True pass set pressure rate, 16.49%, right up there with his career highs. Are you getting the theme here? Kenny Clark had pretty close if not definitively, the best season of his career, at the very least rushing the passer in 2023. And that's saying something because he's already made two Pro Bowls previously, making Pro Bowl number three this year. Uh, Predicted that he'd have at least five and a half sacks this year. He did. Uh, Also predicted that he would increase his pressure rate over 2022. He did, and his pressure rate last year was pretty good. 9.8% jumps to 11.66, though. Kenny Clark had a phenomenal year. There are plenty of knocks on Joe Barry, but Kenny Clark has played a lot of really good football under Joe Barry, and I think part of that is a scheme question. We'll talk about that in an answer to a listener question uh, at the end of the show here. But Kenny Clark played some pretty good football under Joe Barry. But yeah, a career year here. He did start a little bit slow. We openly wondered on this very podcast if some of his best years were behind him. No, it just turned out that his best half season was still in front of him. He made uh, We made a big deal over the course of the season on Lucas Van Ness racking up pressures um, 
game after game after game down the stretch. Kenny Clark makes those numbers look like number or look like nothing, and his numbers um, stack up in a very long string as well. Down the stretch, week 10 through the divisional round, according to Pro Football Focus, he had at least one pressure in every single game. In that same span, only two games with fewer than three pressures. There were five games where he had at least five, and there were four games where he had at least six. Down the stretch, Kenny Clark was a monster and was a big reason the Packers' defense was able to do what it did in the back half of the season. Now, it didn't do a lot overall, but had some good moments, I think, and Kenny Clark was at the center of a lot of those good moments. Did he meet expectations? Easiest yes on this list. The The expectations for Kenny Clark are always high. I think he exceeded them in 2023. 2024, I think heading into the season, Kenny Clark is an extension candidate. He's in the final year of his contract. He's got a $24 million cap hit. An extension would likely relieve some of that. If you're looking for ways the Packers can um, increase their available cap space, it seems like an extension for Kenny Clark would probably make a lot of sense. And I know there may be some some nerves about extending a, a someone in their late 20s uh, like the Packers did with David Bakhtiari. Just look at the, the work the Packers are going to have to do to get out from Bakhtiari's contract this offseason. I get that. That can happen to anybody, though. And if you're looking to create some cap space to to help the Packers in 2024, we know for sure that Clark is going to be here for 2024, probably 2025 and, and 26 as well. If you're looking to create some space for those seasons while hanging on to Kenny Clark, who by all accounts is a, a hard worker, a great locker room presence, a very, very good player too. Shoot, I think an extension is probably the way to go. So again, overall, I think you can see some of the issues that we talk about here. We focus very heavily on the pass rush. I think pass rush is more valuable than stopping the run anyway. But despite some obvious struggles from this defensive line group, they did a lot of good things individually in 2023 as well. And heading into 2024, I wanted to answer or end by answering a question that I think we're going to talk about a lot in in various capacities this offseason. Carl Anderson asks this in our Discord server. I know we've talked about this ad nauseum, but it has mainly been about players on the outside, the 4-3 versus 3-4 question. What about interior guys? What qualities do you want to see when comparing a 3-4 and a 4-3? A very relevant question because the Packers probably could stand at some some talent or at the very least depth on the defensive line. So what are they going to be looking at as they add pieces for their defensive line. I think, broadly speaking, you can look at the difference between 3-4 defensive linemen and 4-3 defensive linemen as guys that are looking to plug a hole in the 3-4 and get upfield in a 4-3. This comes down to, broadly speaking, and I I could be wrong if you are somebody who knows more about this than me, uh, by all means, uh, drop me a note, thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com. But as I've always understood it, the difference between the 3-4 and the 4-3 basically comes down to a two-gap scheme versus a one-gap scheme. So look at all the spaces between offensive linemen. Uh, from the defensive perspective, they are called, they're called gaps. On the, offensive line, or on the offensive side, you call them holes. On the defensive side, you call them gaps. Um, I don't know why there's the difference in terminology, but uh, that's just the way it is. 
3-4 and 4-3 defenses differ in how they want their defensive line to try to control those gaps. This is not always the case, and we'll get to some exceptions here in a second, from Green Bay. But in a 3-4, you are most likely to have your defensive lineman head up on a man and trying to hold him in place and playing the gap on either side, while the, the linebackers around and behind you make plays to fill the other gaps and sort of clean up around you. It's called a two-gap scheme. In a 4-3, your defensive linemen are more likely to be lined up on a half-man, so slanted or, or shifted slightly to one side, and try to get upfield from there. The three-technique defensive tackle is kind of the archetypal example there. Your three-technique defensive tackle is lined up on the shoulder of a guard, usually the, I believe, the outside shoulder, maybe the inside shoulder. It, doesn't, it, it does matter, but you're lining up on the shoulder of a guard, and you're trying to get upfield through that gap, and you're counting on other guys around you to fit in around you. You are primarily a penetrator, trying to penetrate upfield into the, the offensive backfield. That's basically what it boils down to. Your two-gap defensive linemen tend to be a little bit bigger because they got to take on the blocks and, and hold the blockers in place, essentially, trying to just hold their ground and, and stop the offensive line from advancing while your guys around you make plays. Your 4-3 defensive linemen want to get into that gap and get upfield. So um, hold the line versus get through the line, basically, is what it comes down to. But, but... This is where scheme distinctions start to break down because it's not just as simple as 3-4 versus 4-3. You have to look at individual defensive coordinators within those distinctions even to really figure out what people want to do. Just look at the difference between Mike Pettin and Joe Barry. Mike Pettin was a classic 3-4-2 gap sort of guy. That's why he wanted uh, Kenny Clark on the nose a lot. Uh, he, he had him as a nose tackle. He was taking on blocks. He was just trying to eat space in the middle. Joe Barry, from day one, has said that he wanted to run a one-gap scheme where his defensive linemen were getting upfield. This is where you started to see Kenny Clark's role change a lot, moving him more and more away from the football, getting him to the outside a little bit. And you've seen a corresponding increase in, the, in his sack numbers, more consistent pressure numbers, he, he's had some, some real success running a scheme like this that allows him to get up the field. The, the confusing part there is that they are both 3-4 defensive guys. It almost makes you think that there's not that big of a difference between a 3-4 and a 4-3. It's really the individual guys and how he wants to use the players that he has on the roster. Again, another reason to just not get all that hung up on, on the scheme differences here. Whether it's 3-4 or 4-3, though, I think we are going to see Halfley look more for those smaller, quicker, get-up-field sort of defensive linemen. You'll have some new additions to the defensive line group and that your outside linebackers are now really going to be more line or linemen instead of linebackers. But um, that really is, is all that it amounts to on the defensive front. And there you go. That's really the difference between 4-3 and 3-4 defensive linemen. 3-4 tend to be a little bit bigger, a little bit bulkier bigger space heaters, 4-3, a little bit smaller and quicker, trying to get upfield. It's really all it comes down to. Uh, but how they're used from there can get a little bit confusing and can differ a little bit from scheme to scheme and team to team and coach to coach. So I've got for you in this episode of Blue 58. I appreciate you tuning in. I'd appreciate it even more if you'd take a second and share this episode with somebody you think would enjoy it. 
It's the number one way we grow, and it's the number one way that we get more people involved in this conversation you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn helps all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.